What is up, everybody, and welcome into the All NBA Show, part of the All City Podcast Network. I'm your host, Adam Mates. I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Tim Legler. Legs, we had one of my favorite one-on-one matchups of the entire year last night in Chet and Wemby. Can't wait to get into uh, to that one with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, I agree with you about the Chet Wemby matchup, and I, I in watching it last night, I I got it got this sense that like this is going to become one of the great matchups we look forward to in this league eventually when the Spurs become competitive and, and both of these yeah. teams are playing for something in the West. The matchup is fascinating um, in the ways that both of these guys impact the game, and I, I just I just was blown away by you know the, this the way they were guarding each other going at each other um it was fascinating to watch man it just it kind of gets me excited about the future holds for these two guys and a number of times they're going to play against each other in the future i agree with you i think there's a rivalry brewing which is always fun uh so we're going to get into that we're also going to have one of the great beat writers in the nba name of the athletic joining us later to talk about the milwaukee bucks and their coaching change the game last night can't wait for that one and then later in the show timothy legler gives his picks for the all-star starters not who he thinks will be named there we don't care about what the fans voted or this or that who legs thinks should be the starters for each conference we'll get into that later but first we are presented by DraftKings fantasy sports check out what DraftKings has to offer this season with code all nba because life's more fun when you're in on the action DraftKings, the crown is yours. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Age and eligibility restrictions apply. Void were prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. We'll start with this Thunder game. And I want to get into the Chet Wemby stuff. I think we'll get into that very, very quickly. But just quickly off the top, 140 to 114, the Thunder get the win. Not a very competitive game. The first quarter, you know, before the Thunder broke away, first quarter a little bit competitive. But they break it open at the end of the first start of the second, and it was kind of a laugher, you know, in terms of the competitiveness. My first note, though, Leg, I love the Spurs' court. I loved it. It's my favorite court in all of the NBA. I love the Fiesta uh, uniforms. I love the Fiesta court. I thought it was a great look. But aside from that, what did you see in this game? Oh, man, I think the thing that jumped out to me the most, Adam, was the, how far Wembenyama has come since the beginning of the year um, and in very totally specific good. ways. Number one, I just think he's much more active offensively in playing in the paint and slashing and demanding the ball when he runs up the floor, gets a guy on his back. Early in the year, he just basically was a guy that was camped at the three-point line most of the time and totally solely relied on his length. And now you're starting to see him as he's gotten more comfortable with the league and more comfortable with the physicality of the league. He's now much more active offensively. And I was very impressed by it. His passing has significantly improved yep. too. Like he finds guys now uh, in, in tough spots, like in tight windows, he can make drop off passes to cutters when he's got the ball in the lane or with his back to the basket in the post. So, uh, I think that's what jumped out to me the most from watching last night. I think Chet Holmgren has been, you know, basically what you saw last night, that's been Chet Holmgren all year. He's just been so good and so smooth and so efficient and so polished and mature. For Wembenyama, like some of it, and it still does look awkward at times. Like some of the stuff he does is kind of awkward, and you don't even know how it goes in sometimes. Right. Some of the balls that end up dropping for him. But that aside, how far he has come, with his, I guess, versatility offensively and the number of ways that he is scoring and attacking. Very, very impressed with what I saw to him last night. This is my same first note, was that Wembenyama, you know, we don't, we're covering the whole league. It's hard to be, you just check in on teams like the Spurs. You know, you maybe catch one out of every eight games or so, one out of every seven games. Right. So it's nice to catch up on Wembenyama at that rate. And that was my take, too, is the learning curve on him have been, has been incredible. And the passing, the calmness under pressure really stood out. And after the game, he was actually asked by Bruno Passos uh, about that specific thing. What is it when you're facing double and triple teams? He says it's probably one of the things that's hardest at the start of the season. But now I understand more where the rotation is. My teammates as well know where I'm comfortable at. I felt like that was a really important quote because to me, that's what stood out last night is he kind of seems to understand the rhythm of the game, the speed and the timing of the game at a significantly different rate than he did at the beginning of the year. 
another thing that he does that really stands out, he might be the best I've ever seen at blocking shots coming from the top of the key. He switches a lot. He's out on the perimeter. And a lot of times when you switch a big out on the perimeter, it takes him away from rim protection. He gets a lot of blocks from sneaking up from the three-point line to block guys who think he's out of the play. I think he had two or three of them just yesterday, and he does it a lot. Unlike even guys like Porzingis and other bigs who, who block shots, they're usually around the rim. He seems to sneak up from behind a lot and get those blocks. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that part of it because um, I'm watching the game last night, and this applies to Chet Holmgren too. In, in my career, and I think it's just historically, but certainly in, in, in the 10 years I played in the league, the best shot blocker I paid, played against was Akeem Olajuwon. And his, it was mainly because of his timing. He wasn't the biggest guy. In fact, if he stood next to Hakeem, he was about 6'10". Um, he wasn't, you know, I played against a, a lot of guys that were like 7 to 9, you know, big-time shot blockers, the Mark Eatons of the world. Um, and, you know, George Mirasan, teammate of mine. He wasn't as big as those guys, but he would bait you in to thinking that you had a ball that you were going to get up on the glass before he could react. And then he was just so quick off his feet to get it. And I'm looking at the timing of some of the blocks I saw last night out of both yep. Wembenyana and Holmgren. Yep. Their timing and ability to get those balls without fouling is really special, both of them. And that's why I'm so enamored with – with you know both these guys because they're not going to be one end of the floor players they're going to have massive impact on the other end and you're right about Wemba Yama and he had one block last night that defied all description when Giddy Giddy had a wide open three in the left corner and for some reason he didn't shoot it so that was surprising enough because in an era when no one turns down three point shots Giddy for whatever reason he didn't want to take the three he drives in and like Wemby picks him up like outside the lane on that side of the floor and. It looks like Giddy's going to go by him and shoot a little finger roll over the front of the rim. And yeah. as he was shooting the ball, Wembanyama jumped and he took the ball. I don't think the ball ever yeah. left Giddy's hand. And Wembanyama just grabbed it with his left grabbed hand it. and snapped yep. it. And started going the other way, right? I'm just going, well, when have you ever seen that? You know, it's it's so so unique. So you're right. I think the the timing and the impact defensively and the range that Wembanyama has um, and Holmgren just very very special. Is that is that your fire alarm there, legs? Oh, is that alarm on the phone? It's gotcha. A, it's a, it's a, it's a alarm going off. Unfortunately, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From my county here in Florida, so that's not good. <laughs> um, the block. I, I was that a block or a steal? We need another name for the type of block. Great question. That was, where it's it's you're a not great blocking question. it away, you're taking it out of the shooting motion, which is kind of crazy. I think technically it's a block, but those blocks are worth more because they count as a steal as well. Um, he, he was phenomenal. The other thing about Wemby that watching last night, I think he can add to his game is offensive rebounding. And this is a thing where he spends so much time on the perimeter that you have to be smart about when and, and where you go. But I thought last night, first of all, they tried to guard him with, with Jalen Williams a lot. They tried to guard him undersized a lot and use Chet roaming. I'll talk about that in a second. But there were a lot of plays just in transition or whatever where he would sprint the court, rim run, try to post up. It doesn't go to him. And then he had offensive rebound chances. And he's only 33rd in the NBA this year in offensive rebound rate. It, you know, he hasn't been an offensive rebounder. But last night he did a great job of saying, okay, if I'm not going to get the post touch or the quick entry, put yourself in position to crash the boards. And he's so long that his over the back, legal over the back, yeah. It is so easy against guys that are six eight. You know he has so much such a length advantage. So to me, it was another area where he looked improved at it last night. But it's an area where I think he can probably focus, figure out the possessions where it's like, okay, this is an offensive rebounding possession. Set myself up to grab the board because I don't know how you box out a guy if you're six eight. You should not be able to ever box out a guy that height. And he seemed to punish him last night with it. Well, and you saw one of those in the second half. It was a complete look of exasperation on Jalen Williams' face because he had perfect position, put his yep. back into him, and had him. It wasn't like he was pinned under the rim. He was feet out, which is a perfect rebounding position. And, and he goes up, and he's got both hands going to get the basketball, and Weminyama just reaches over his head and just grabs it with two hands and then puts it back in, or he might have gotten fouled on that one. 
And the look on Jalen Williams' face was like, well, what do you expect me to do with that? There's nothing I can do. I, I, I was, it was literally technically perfect what he did on a box out and still couldn't come yeah. up with the ball. So I agree with that. Now, I was, I was wondering, clearly, like, there's something there between he and Holmgren. Like, we know that. There's something that exists. Did you think, and, and I'm glad what you said in the beginning, you're not watching the Spurs every night. I'm not watching the Spurs every night. It's the whole reason you watch the Spurs is going to be about every seven games so you can get a progress report on Victor Wembanyama. That's really yeah. all this season. And so I thought last night he looked like he had a different level of intensity and purpose to what he was doing. And I don't know if did Chet bring that out in him. And if that's the case, I love it because that tells you a lot about kind of this matchup and, and the evolution of it going forward as the Spurs get more competitive because he definitely had – more of an edge to his game physically right. you know he was running down the floor at times and, and early in the year he'd run down the floor you know sort of you know down the middle of the floor the ball's coming up behind him and then he would turn in the lane but by the time the ball was like over half court and they were maybe ready to advance it to him he was already pushed out of the lane or he willingly just conceded right. and ran in the corner Last night, he was running into the chest of Holmgren, into the chest of Jalen Lewis, whoever it was guarding him. And then he was turning and putting his hand up. And he's standing flat-footed. His fingertips are close to the rim height-wise. And, and so he's the easiest target in the world. And he was holding his position pretty well. And then they were throwing it in there, and he was doing something with it. You're getting fouled or getting at least some sort of shot up to the rim. He wasn't doing that at the beginning of the year. And I don't – that's you know evolution and progress for him, but I also wonder how much of that was just like he was really enjoying going at Chad Holmgren. What do you think? I had the same note, and the one thing I will say is, as we talk about checking in throughout the course of the year with Wemby, one of my first notes of him, first game of the year was, this word can be a little harsh, and I don't mean it to be too harsh, he was a little soft. And that's typical of a young player coming into the NBA. The physicality of the NBA is just different. You can't simulate that at any other level. So I thought that the physicality, he wasn't responding to it well. I remember when we checked in on him a couple weeks ago, it was one of my notes of, hey, he seems to have found a little bit of an edge. And I remember Spurs fans replying, that's actually been a thing. It's not surprising. He's been playing with a little bit more of an edge. But there's no question that last night, for the games I've watched of him, was far and away the most he's matched physicality, instigated physicality, and seemed to just have a little bit of a um, a toughness to him about, no, I want to go at you. Yeah. That dunk he had where he went, lowers his shoulder into Chad. Great, like, first of all, they're two skinny guys. You don't see skinny guys use their shoulder too much to create space. He creates space with it. I think it caught Chad off uh, uh, guard, dunks it, and then gives a stare down. And I know these are small things, but... If you would have told me, is Wemby the type of guy that's going to stare down somebody like that? I would have said, I don't think so. I like to see it because I do think it signals a growing toughness in him that's not just about using the shoulder, but also about, no, sometimes in the NBA you have to send little messages and, and be aggressive and this or that. And so I definitely think it's an area of growth for him over the course of the season. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the, definitely the biggest number one takeaway from the game to me was just how far he has come in that regard. And by the way, again, following up with Chet, right after that play, they go down the other end of the floor. Chet Hunger runs to the right corner, catches the ball. Wembyama closes out on him. Chet like pump fakes, drives by him, misses a shot, immediately tips in his own shot. Like my yep. point being, like wasn't phased at all by what just happened to him on the yep. other end of the floor. Came right back and just made the right play. And I, you know, here's here's what's here's what's what's really interesting about this this matchup. I'm a big believer in rookie of the year. Uh, you know, the impact you're having on a winning team should matter, should carry a lot of weight to where you're not as stat-based um, with certain guys. If they're on, and certainly a guy like that's starting on a team that's got the record Oklahoma City does, and, you know, basically 18, you know, eight, nine, two, three right. blocks, shooting high percentages across the board. I mean, it's not like he's averaging eight points a game. He, he's a highly productive player on one of the best teams in the NBA. And I thought all along, like, this, you know, it, that should matter. And I think yeah. I thought Chet Holmgren's the rookie of the year, and, I, and it's going to take a lot to sway me. But here's, what's, here's what will change that. And, and his ceiling is not as great this year offensively as Wembenyama's because Wembenyama's the best player on their team. 
Right. Chet Holmgren is not the best player on that team. And you've got a guy averaging 31 points a game on that team. So there's only so much there for Chet Holmgren on a given night. And he's just super like judicious about his shot selection. He's not a guy that's going to be high volume. Victor Wembanyama can take any shot he wants. He's the best player on the team. They don't care about winning. And he can you know, fill up the statute. So the only thing that could potentially sway the award, even if the Spurs win you know, 15 games this year, and the Thunder win 55, sometimes the statistics can be so eye-popping, like night after night after night, that the edge will go to that guy. That's got just this – because I think for the most part the people that vote look at that award as a stat-based award regardless of winning. And I'm not really sure I buy into that. I like to reward the impact on winning teams. But Webanyama's numbers lately – like every night now, he's getting, you know, 20 to 25 on a bad night. He had 33 the night and beat at 70. And I didn't notice any of them because of what Embiid did. But I feel like, what? how do you feel about that right now? Comparing the two guys in terms of where they sit here now at the midseason point, because a quarter of the way in, I thought it was easily homegrown. Now, with the numbers I was putting up, even though they're not really winning games, you wonder if, if he's closed the gap. And it's really now maybe Wembenyama is is the guy that would be in the lead for rookie of the year because some of the stuff is just so, you know, it's eye popping. Some of the stuff he does on the court. What do you think about that? I think it's the best race we have going on right now. It's better than the MVP race, to be honest with you, with Embiid kind of taking a, a pretty commanding lead, in my opinion, on that MVP race. So for me, it's a great race, and it's great because of those reasons. One, they're so similar. It reminds me in some ways of the Carmelo LeBron. Uh, rookie of the year race all the way back in 2004, if you remember it. LeBron was more spectacular, and I think watching him, you felt he is going to be the better player. He looks like a transcendent. He looks like what he ended up becoming. Carmelo, great in his own right, led the Nuggets to the playoffs that year and, and was such a key part of a playoff team. And you looked at it, and that was the calculation. It reminds me of that. And what I will say is I am content on January 25th rough just barely over the halfway mark to say let's let this one play out because it's such a great it's it's such a great race that I kind of want to see I don't think it's won yet I think it's okay to not have your mind made up and we'll kind of re- revisit this at the end of the year but by the way that might have been what led to some of the tension I think that last night there was a healthy rivalry between those two guys where it didn't look buddy buddy it looked a little bit like no we both want the same thing and that fourth quarter the game was over it was a 30 point game but they're matched up with each other to start the fourth quarter, and both of them were trying to make statements against each other, and they both did. I thought they both played phenomenally well. My last note on this game, Legs, that's very interesting to me is this game featured the starkest contrast between point guard play. The Spurs don't really have one. They've got some good players, but they don't have really necessarily have a great drive and kick, uh, you know, stable of drive and kick players to them, especially from point guard. And the Thunder have so many. They have so many guys that can drive and, and kick, and we've talked about this a lot. The Thunder are great because of the waves. They just every configuration they roll out there is good and 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 has players. But I think more than anything, they have more point guards than or or point guard adjacent players than anybody in the league. And you really saw that last night as it was just drive, 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 drive over and over again. Both teams moved the ball well, played unselfishly, but one team had the point guards to be able to do that effectively. Yeah, you know, one thing that jumped out to me last night in watching them play, um, and we've been effusive in our praise for Jalen Williams all year, Chet also, we all know what Shea is. Giddy is interesting, because last night he didn't have one of his best games, and he's he doesn't look super confident in his shooting right now. But, but the one understated thing that Giddy does, and it's so important to promote flow offensively, yeah. I call him a ball mover. Gordon Hayward yeah. is a guy that I use that term on a lot where it, it's not necessarily a play that leads immediately directly to offense, but it gets the ball moving to the right spot quickly yeah. and decisively that later in that possession, you'll end up with an advantage. And it's just, it's such a nuanced thing, but Giddy does it all the time because he just does not play with the ball. It, it, he makes – the right read and gives it up to the right guy with very simplistic in what he does. It is so important to have a guy on the court like that. 
that smart and sees the floor and is just willing to just get it to the next open open jersey on your team and let those guys now create an advantage on the other side of the floor without getting it, holding it, looking, dribbling, and now the defense is sort of reconfigured and now they're set up to play the next action. You know, a lot of times Shea's drawing so much attention when the ball does come to Giddy, there's an advantage there, and then he moves it quickly to the next spot. I noticed that about him last night. I think that's to your point about the number of guys they have that can yeah. facilitate offense. And that that look, Oklahoma City is legit, man. I, you know, and they're young, and they don't have any playoff success under their belts at all, this group. But I'm telling you, I'm, I just buy into them more and more and more every single night that I watch them. Yeah. I, I love all the different options they have. Uh, and you're right about him. Vasa Micic also can go back and forth between a dribble drive attack guy and a connector, as you're talking about. And they just have a lot of those guys that make those connecting passes. So I, they're fun to watch. They're really good. Uh, um, they're the most, maybe the most interesting team in the league this year, just in terms of they could swing first round loss all the way to the finals. Who knows? And, and they're just so fun to watch develop. Last one on this topic, Elijo del Kaneki has a super chat for us. He says, as a Spurs fan, I watch every game. The first switch was when he moved to center in December. That's true. Moving, playing him in different roles and now having him play center and having a lot more space on the court. That was one of the leaps for him. And then the second switch was after the Bucks game on TNT. He's more aggressive and intensive. Um, I definitely think the center part of this is big. Playing, you know, who he's playing with, I, I think, is also having a, an impact with him. But I, I'm curious. I, I don't. I don't really remember this. What is he? The uh, Bucks game. What was that turning point? Do you recall a specific game being a turn, turning point? I don't know that the Bucks game was the turning point, but to me, that was the, to that point. That was I thought the best game that I'd seen him play because of the level of competition how he rose to the occasion, the way he played late, the way he didn't back down from Giannis on, on defensively and some plays he made on him. I don't know that it was the turning point. I think he'd already yeah. made that turn before that, but that was definitely, again, moving it forward and taking a big leap, and, and I think he did again last night. Okay. All right, let's take a break. On the other side, we're going to bring in Eric Name from The Athletic and ask about this Milwaukee Bucks team that made a very, very unique change at, at coach. They also played last night and had a dominant performance, so I'm curious to get his insight on what the team was like in those last days under Griffin and what he expects to be the changes for the Bucks going forward. But first, the NBA season is in full swing. If you can't get enough of the action on the court, spice things up with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner. Right now, customers bet five bucks and get 200 instantly in bonus bets no matter what, even if you bet on Adrian Griffin to win coach of the year. That five bucks not going to hit this year. You still would win the 200 instantly and bonus bets at DraftKings. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app, use promo code ALLNBA and qualify for that offer. Only on DraftKings with code ALLNBA, the crown is yours. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 878-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY, that's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777. Or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 and older age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, back here, segment two, and we are joined by one of the best beat reporters in all of the NBA, covering the Bucks for The Athletic. It's Eric Name. Eric, welcome, uh, and thanks for joining the show. You've had a very interesting week, I imagine. Uh, yeah, it has been interesting. A uh, lot, uh, lot of fun stuff, very little sleep, uh, and lots of changes in Milwaukee. So you had a couple of articles uh, this week about the change, and I want to first go to, I'm so curious because you hear some mixed reports about, you know, how the team was feeling. Oh, no, we lost Eric Dave. Oh, there he is. How the team was feeling and different things. If you just take us to, a lot of people anticipated this move despite the record. Were you one of them? And if so, what was the sort of mood of the team that was off or, or what was going on in those final days under Griffin that maybe led people to believe this was coming? To me, I think it probably starts with, I mean, there's a lot of stuff at the start of the season, but over the last month, I think you just kind of get to this spot where you get to January 1st, 
you're excited about going up against the Pacers again. They were the team that beat you in the in-season tournament. You'll remember Tyrese Halliburton did a little Dame time action after he hit the the game winner. And, you know, that's a game where, like, everyone's up and excited, and they lose. And they lose again to the Pacers. And so they end up just getting beat down by the Pacers, and then – they go on a road trip. They, you guys were just talking about that uh, Spurs Bucks game. They sneak out a win against the Spurs, the lowly Spurs. Again, it's a game right. because the defense isn't going right. You get to Houston. They lose in Houston, and Giannis goes, you know, wild in the post game where he's talking about what's our defense? What are we doing? Are we trying to take away threes? Are we trying to right. take away offensive rebounds? What What are we trying to do? And uh, the, it's just building and building and building, and he explodes and and. One would think Giannis Dedekumbo makes a statement like that. Final game of a road trip. You go home. You're back home on Monday. You play the Utah Jazz. And you let the Jazz shoot 11 of 16 from three in the first quarter. And you go down 31 at the half. And again, they made it a little bit more respectable. But uh, to me, it's, it's just kind of like the idea that, yes, Adrian Griffin was going to be given, you know, some leash this year to try to figure out, okay, what are we doing defensively? We got to be different than Bud. We got to try some different stuff. And he's going to be given that leash. But I think if you're going to have growing pains, you also need to have growth. And when you got to January, that was their worst month of the year defensively. One of their worst months defensively. And I, even since, since I've been covering the team in like 2013, it's rough to find. It's hard to find one that's been this bad. And those losses just kept kind of piling up. And then even when they're winning, you know, you go to uh, Saturday in Detroit, it's a 141-135 win over the 4-38 and Detroit Pistons. Like, right. it's it's just you're not seeing the improvement. You're not seeing the growth. And you get to the spot where I just think ultimately ownership thought – the record's fine. We're 30 and 13. We're in second. It's manageable right now, but we're not seeing growth from this coach and we're not feeling like we're going in the right direction. And at that point, um, I think they just had enough. So well, the thing I guess Eric, go my ahead. question is going to be looking at their personnel. Okay. And the changes there. I mean, and I don't think we can overstate how important it is to have that level of defender as you had a Drew Holiday at the point of attack, like just setting the tone for your defense and a guy that like fights over picks and, and he, and he, you know, he chases guys to the rim when he's beat and he can guard bigger guys. Cause he's so strong, all that. I think Chris Middleton has lost a little bit with all the injuries. I don't think he is the impact player that he was defensively. He gives guys more space now in the perimeter. Like some of the elite scorers, he used to guard pretty well. Um, you know, they're playing, even though it's Giannis and he's super athletic, they're playing two bigs like all, you know, most of the time. Bobby Portis, I think, has struggled at times defensively. So that's what I was thinking to myself when they made the change. It didn't surprise me because I know what's at stake for this team and they want someone over there that's got more of a presence. I get it. But I also felt like if you're Adrian Griffin, you got to be thinking like, well, it's not all on me that we're this bad defensively. So I guess – you know, what, what are your thoughts on that and just looking at their personnel and how much room is there to improve defensively under Doc Rivers? I think on a night-in, night-out basis, the Bucks have the worst transition defense in the NBA. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, there's just breakdowns after breakdowns after breakdowns last week, or I guess a week and a half ago at The Athletic. Um, you know, one of Adam's friends, Seth Partnow, joined me, and we were talking about, you know, how can the Bucks get better defensively? And the thing Seth kept saying was like, I can't even look at their half-court defense because they're so bad in transition. They're mismatched all the time in transition that, like, I'm not seeing what their half-court defense is supposed to look like. And for me, just watching this team on a night in, night out basis, you know, I think back to Adrian Griffin's final game. Chris Middleton hits a step back jumper, half court set in the fourth quarter. There's 10 minutes to go. And the Bucks don't know who they're covering on the other possession. After a made basket, they don't know who's covering who, how it's going to go. Isaiah Stewart gets a layup. This is the NBA and for for as many problems as the Bucks have had, you know, they've always kind of said like, hey, once the fourth quarter comes, we lock it down defensively. We, we you know, we really get focused. That's That wasn't an isolated incident. That's a thing that happens every night. So for me, I think if they can 
work on some of those habits. I think they've, it's been a mistake tactically to crash the boards in the way that they do. They're one of the worst offensive rebounding teams in the league. They're not good at it. And Adrian Griffin has given or or had given the guys freedom to go out there and crash the offensive glass. I think if you just get everyone back and try to get set up, I think I'm not sure it's going to be five spots in defensive rating, but I think it takes you from that 20 range to 15. And that's like before talking about the fact that, okay, maybe Bobby Portis shouldn't be, blitzing every single time in pick and roll right Uh, the the whole league knows that he's had three steals in the month of january he's played 224 minutes (laughs) like it's it's not working every team in the league knows you just stretch it out the pick and roll swing 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 the bucks defense is broken down you're getting a layup or a three and and that's every time bobby portis is in a pick and roll and that's not necessarily bobby portis's fault like he has his own limitations as a player as you mentioned tim um but it's just putting him in situations that that make more sense you know it when you look at what Giannis is doing this year, yes, they they tried it with Brooke Lopez at the start of the year, trapping, blitzing, out at the level of the ball, and the whole team went to Griff and said, no, no, that, that guy's the runner-up for defense player of the year. He's been one of the best defense players in the league. Get him back by the rim. And they did that, but when you look at the rest of the scheme, Giannis is still switching way more than he used to. And, and that Bucks defense used to be built on – Brooke Lopez is at the rim. Giannis is in help side. They're gonna they're gonna push you into the mid range. They're gonna force short jumpers that come off the rim in a way that Giannis can grab and go and and they're off. And this year, their defensive rebounding has plummeted. Giannis is you know one of the great defensive rebounders in the league. His defensive rebound rate last time I checked is at 22. It's been as high as 30 during the Mike Budenholzer era. It's around 25, 26. Like there's just a a number of schematic things that I think can get better, even with the personnel. The personnel, I think, is probably going to keep them from being a truly elite defense. Uh, But I I do think there's definitely a world where you can make some smaller tweaks to get into that 10 to 15 range instead of being in that 20 to 25 range. You mentioned the personnel. You know, the biggest personnel skepticism I have about the Bucks is I do not buy a Malik Beasley, Damian Lillard backcourt defensively. As good as it can be on offense, I just don't think that's it. And I know Marjan Bochamp has sort of lost a little momentum from what he was coming into the season. I really like Andre Jackson, but I don't know if he's ready. Do you feel that the Bucks need to make some addition to their backcourt defensively before the, the, the trade deadline or at the trade deadline? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really tough spot to try to figure out if you need to go get that or you already have it at home. And you have to decide. I mean, I, I think throughout the year, one of the the bigger problems has been not playing Andre Jackson or Marjan Bochamp as much. Like mm. uh, Malik Beasley clearly having an unbelievable offensive season. Yeah. I mean, he's shooting nearly 50% from the three-point line. Um, you don't really need that next to Dame Lillard. Dame Lillard can just do that. Like he's that type of shooter. You can have that, you know, more role-playing, low-usage wing that's out there defending, and it's just something that the Bucks didn't do a lot under Adrian Griffin. And and maybe they, they still will start Malik Beasley, but I, I do think those wings have to start getting more usage. Whether it's Andre Jackson or Marjan Bochamp, it looks like Andre Jackson is kind of in the lead at the moment there. Um, but if you don't trust either of those, then yes, you do need to go find a defensive player you need to find a wing and that means you know you gotta start thinking about trading pat Connaughton or, or bobby portis and i think where they get into a tough spot as you look at what they're gonna do to the trade deadline um no first round picks none zero mm-hmm. there's no there's no pick swaps there there's not they are capped all the way out with the drew holiday trade and the damian Miller trade no first round picks second round picks they have number 35 right now that's the portland trailblazers pick uh this year and they have their 2027 second round pick that's it that is the the full draft Mm. capital that the bucks have so then you got to start looking at the players and you look at kind of in the spots on their roster uh 80 of their salary cap is tied up in their top four players in Giannis, Dame, Chris, and Brooke. So then you you got to start looking at Bobby Portis, who makes about 11. You look at Pat mm. Connett, that makes about nine. And you start to add that up. Everybody else on the roster is on a minimum or a rookie contract. So as you're trying to add that up and aggregate salaries to get to a spot to make 
to, to get a difference maker, it gets really difficult. It, it, it just does. And I think for the most part, when you get around the trade deadline, it used to be maybe you could find a difference maker between the 10 to $15 million range. That range is like 15 to 20, 20 to right. 25. Like that's where the real difference makers are. So if you're talking about the trade that you're going to make, it's got to be one of those like role player type, maybe yeah. defense only limited offensive skill. Uh, and, and that's not to say that's a bad trade. It could legitimately help, right? Like they have to have another pitch to throw other than Damian Lillard and Malik Beasley, it, you know, at the two guard spots. So they do need that. Um, but it's just a matter of, could it be Andre Jackson? Like, is that, do you believe enough in him? Uh, obviously you're in Denver. You saw Christian Brown have a, a, a very impactful yep. postseason. Um, yep. But Christian Brown also played a lot more during the regular season and they got him those reps. So you have to make that decision. Doc Rivers comes in. Uh, he's typically, you know, a veteran coach that doesn't tend to love playing young players. Uh, so maybe your only option is going out to get one of those role players. But I agree with you when you're looking at the personnel, they have to have a, another pitch to be able to throw. Cause that's not to say Malik Beasley can't help in the playoffs. You know, I covered a Bucks championship team that, had Bryn Forbes uh, essentially win two games against the Miami Heat in the first round. It's a, it's a thing that can happen. Like a shooter like that can do that, but you need those other pitches. You need to be able to have PJ Tucker to play 35 minutes and and not score at all during the NBA finals. Like you got to have those other things. So yeah, they, they really do have to figure out from a personnel perspective, they need that other guy and maybe it's already on their roster and they just need to lean into it more or they got to go out and get it. Eric, last last thing for me, I, and and I thought it was a major red flag at the time because I've known him a long time, and I know how smart he is, and I know you know what he's capable of, how much help he was going to be able to give Adrian Griffin. But when Terry Stotts walked away from this situation right before the season started, and 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 you know, there's been reports about kind of what went down and how that happened. Um, I thought it was kind of a red flag because I mean you know for Terry Stotts to do that, he was looking at something that he didn't think was right. And in hindsight, I guess he was right. Like he made the right call probably based on how this has played out. The question for you is if he had stayed, because I just think he could have been so beneficial to Adrian Griffin and making some of the kinds of adjustments we are talking about right now. Do you think it's possible that we might be talking about a different scenario right here? Or was this almost a foregone conclusion that this was sealed in stone before before the season even started really because i think you look at the bucks they're looking around the eastern conference they're going all right we got nick nurse you got to deal with you got eric spolster in miami you got missoula in boston it's young but still has at least one postseason under his belt and then even out west guys like frank vogel and mike malone and ty lu and they're looking at this first year head coach um and now number one assistant leaves so i'm just curious do you think terry stott's staying could have maybe impacted a different outcome for Adrian Griffin. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible. Uh, Sham Shranya and I at The Athletic were the ones that had reported, you know, like the the brief verbal altercation that they had at a shoot-around uh, right. right before Terry had stepped out. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it was the situation where uh, – I don't know that Terry felt like he was getting the respect that he deserves. As you mentioned to him, he'd been in the league forever. He was clearly brought in to try to help Adrian along. And it didn't feel like he was getting that same respect. Maybe there's also the argument, I think, from Adrian's side that maybe Terry should have been more deferential and, and showed him more respect since he was the head coach. But, yeah, it didn't work out. And I do think there's a possibility that it does go differently if Terry's around. I Especially – once they they traded for Damian Lillard, it just felt like that was that could have been such a valuable tool, like to have Terry's full playbook to to know all this stuff. And again, the league has changed a lot since then, and you know maybe they're not going to run the wheel action and stuff that they used to run out in Portland. But like some of that stuff is is going to be helpful, and to have you know that veteran presence in the locker room, I think could have been very helpful. Uh, and then for that to go sideways. I just think it, it really hurt because ultimately the Bucks I think, knew what they were doing in hiring a first-time head coach. They wanted something different. They knew that, hey, Mike Budenholzer wasn't open enough to, you know, adjustments defensively, trying different things. We need someone that's going to do that, and that's why they hired Adrian Griffin. Uh, and then two days before the season, they traded Drew Holiday, which is – 
you know, as you mentioned, Tim, the ultimate weapon, right? That's the guy that allows you to do all of the cool stuff defensively. You can do more switching. You you can, I mean, you, you've seen how the Celtics have used him, right? Like he's in the middle of that zone. They're, they're just doing crazy stuff because Drew Holiday can handle all of that. Um, I just think that was a really tough thing for Adrian to deal with before the season because I think he spent the summer, he spent the interview process, he spent all of that talking about one Bucks team you know, that had that core four that had been around since the championship in 2021. And then all of a sudden he had a very different team to deal with. And uh, I think Terry would have been very helpful in that transition, in, in that idea of going from one team to the other. Uh, and ultimately with, with him not around, I think it just looked rudderless at times. And and you kind of end up in the situation that you're at now where uh, you're bringing in Doc Rivers and, and you're going to need a new coach to try to get you to a championship again this season. Well, Eric, thank you so much. That was a lot of great intel on on the Bucks, and I, I every time I'm preparing for the show, I and we're going to talk Bucks. I always read the latest that you have. Great X's and O's, great insight from behind the scenes. I really appreciate you hopping on, and everybody check out his work at the Athletic. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for having me. So, legs, real quickly, because we don't have a ton of time. That was a lot of good info. I feel like we hit a lot of the main sort of themes about what's going on with the Bucks and what the Bucks hope changes now under Doc Rivers, transition defense, pick and roll, even personnel and who plays. So there were some interesting things there. Last night, if we just go very quickly into the game last night, because they beat a very hot Cavs team uh, last night, which was actually a pretty impressive win. Doc Rivers not joining the team even yet. But nonetheless, sometimes it's nice to see how a team plays after the firing of a coach. The big three, Dame, Giannis, and Middleton, all had phenomenal games. The thing that stood out to me, well, two things. One, Isaac Okoro got in foul trouble in the first two minutes of this game. I think it changed how Cleveland plays. Anytime you lose a starter two minutes into the game, it changes your, your game plan. But number two, the Cavs used to have two bigs. Now they have one. Dean Wade's playing at the power forward a lot of yeah. minutes. You got some other guys. The Bucks have two bigs and two pick and roll options. And I thought that their ability to sometimes drag Jared Allen into the corner, guard whoever he was matched up against, sometimes drag him into the pick and roll but have nobody backside. I thought the multiple pick and roll options really killed Cleveland in this game. Absolutely did. Um, I also thought a, a, a big factor for the Cavs. I just thought that they played so slow at the beginning of the game. They picked it up a little mm -hmm. bit in the second half. Their pace – I mean, in terms of walking the ball up the floor, it was completely advantageous to Milwaukee. And, and you just heard Eric talk about it, and you and I have talked about this several times. When you can get their bigs behind the ball defensively, the Bucs, I mean, you, they're, they're terrible at defending early offense. If you can just push that thing up the floor to get ahead of Lopez or Giannis or at least even with those guys, and they didn't do that at all in the first half. They, everything was slow and sluggish. And it, it plays into Milwaukee's strength defensively because they do have some guys with some strength. And if it gets into more of a half-court game, then they're going to be a little bit better equipped to handle that. I still thought their drop coverage wasn't super effective last night in Milwaukee. I just don't think Cleveland played one of their better games they've played here of late. And they've been red hot. And they've been a great story here for the last month. And they've gotten back into the picture in the East where we expected them to be. But last night wasn't their best effort at all. Um, and I, I thought Milwaukee – you know, looked looked better defensively last night than they have been because of the way the Cavs were playing. Yeah. Um, let's move on to a couple other quick hitter stories before we get to our All-Stars. Last night, something happened that really annoyed me, Legs. While getting blown out, first of all, the Suns on a seven-game win streak now, hottest team in the NBA, were trailing big after the first quarter, come back and get a blowout win. Uh, Luka Doncic had a fan thrown out last night, presumably for saying something pretty, you know, pretty mild. This is a trend that I see in the NBA. We've seen it with Kyrie. We've seen it with LeBron. We've seen it, uh, with Russell Westbrook. It's a growing thing for players to have a fan that's heckling them thrown out of the game. And I don't like it. Now, look, fans can go too far. I think there's reasons to have a fan thrown out. And perhaps last night there was an example that later will be reported and I'll change my tune. But there have been enough of these now where it's just a, a, a fan saying something like, you know, you suck or something of that nature, you know, where I feel like that's the role of a fan. So for me personally, I'm bothered by this. Are you bothered by at all by the trend of players having fans thrown out of the arena for heckling? 
I'm a little torn on this one. I'll tell you, and I'll tell you why. There, there were times when I was playing in the league and and being in NBA arena since then for the last 20 plus years. The, you know, the, the extent to which some people cross lines is always sure. kind of blown me away in what, in what you're you think you're allowed to get away with. Now they've come a long way in NBA arenas in addressing this, even before the player specifically goes to you know security and points somebody out. Security in general at NBA games is much more cognizant of people mm. crossing those lines than they were when I played. I mean, some of the stuff that went on between fans and, you know, and guys on the court or on the bench in in the decade I played in was just it's unconscionable, some of the stuff that you would listen to and with no repercussion whatsoever. The league has addressed it. The league wants to curb it. But having said all of that, I felt like last night for Luca, that was just like a frustration thing. You know? Totally was. You're, you're getting your you're getting your ass kicked and you know he's whining a lot he's complaining to the officials a lot like Luca tends to do he'd already gotten a technical and so now he just this whoever this fan was and he's wearing a Booker jersey and it's in Dallas and you know he he comes out and he's heckling Luca and now I would like to know specifically what did he say man what did he say to cross that proverbial line that that I think warrants getting kicked out. Luca didn't say that. I mean, so I read somewhere one comment where he talked about Luca not being in shape, get on a treadmill. Correct. Or get on a treadmill. Yep. Right. And now I don't know if there were much worse things said than that. Right. Um, but I thought it was definitely a bad look for Luca because it's a reaction to the context of the game. And that's, right. that's not when you want to do something like that. So I'm a little torn because I do think some fans take it way too far. And I just don't believe that you have a license to say whatever you want because you bought a right. ticket. I, I don't believe that at all. Um, but I do think it needs to be fairly egregious. And right. we don't know what exactly this fan did, but it certainly seemed like this was a frustration and a reaction on the part of Luka Doncic based on the fact that they were getting smoked by the Suns. Yeah, I, I think that was exactly it. And then after the game, you know, because there was media seated right next to the fan and, you know, me, several media members reporting like, hey, I didn't hear anything. Not that it didn't happen. But I didn't hear anything particularly egregious. And then after the game, Luca attacked Tim McMahon, who I think is a very good reporter. And by the way, a very pro Luca reporter. He says a yeah. lot of really good things about Luca all the time. And he was attacked after the game by Luca. And I just thought there's too many players, you know, kicking fans out. I agree with you that there can, there is a line, but a lot of times I, I think that it just is emotional frustration from a player. And then a lot of players attacking media, both of those things, there's a place for it. And, and uh, players need to defend themselves. But when you go too far, you sort of, you break this, this fabric that is the, the symbiosis of media fans and players. And I just thought last night was an example of both. Um, so I wanted to call it out. Let me get a quick, we have a super chat on the Doc Rivers one here. Let me get to it because we always appreciate our super chatters. Jay Money, who gives $5, says, what's the Doc Rivers hype other than the 08-year resume looks so, so to me, but maybe I'm missing something because I never got the Budenholzer fire. What do you make of Doc Rivers as a coach? What's your analysis of him? All right. Because I think it's more than just so Doc over the years, you know, which says five straight game seven losses, 10 overall. Right. That's a lot, man. And you got to own that. And that's part of the narrative around Doc Rivers. You can't avoid that. And there have been times in those moments when I thought, you know, he didn't necessarily react well on pressure and kind of had a you know glazed look over his eyes a little bit in those moments. But here's what I will cut, here's where I will cut him a break, Adam. And I said this last night on SVP. Here's what is different about what he's walking into. Think about the teams that he had in Philadelphia. And imagine being Doc Rivers coaching a team that's got two different eras of point guard in your time in Philly, both of whom played in all-star games in that given year that completely changed who they were in the postseason and go try to win. And I'm talking about Ben Simmons and James Harden. So obviously Ben Simmons had the massive meltdown in the Atlanta series right. that led to him – you know, being jettisoned off. Harden, same thing last year in the Boston series. He had two great games and five games where he shot about 25% from the field and more importantly, completely changed his aggressiveness. And that's the same thing Simmons did. It's one thing if you don't shoot well. Like Damian Lillard might have a five for 20 game in the playoffs. Probably will one night. But he's not going to change his style. 
He's going to continue to run to the light, as I like to call it. He's going to embrace the moment. Might not have a great game every night. Giannis, same thing. Now, Giannis pretty much always fills a stat sheet, even when he doesn't shoot well, because he's just so active and just affects the game in so many ways. So Doc now is taking two players that are going to show up. They're going to show up mentally when you need them to. And the last time I think he had that was in Boston. You had Paul Pierce, big game player. Ray Allen, big game player. Kevin Garnett, the, the just absolute model of intensity and leadership and verbal communication defensively and just brought it every time, did not back down for anything. And then you had Rondo, who was a big game player. So, and guess what? Doc won a championship with that group of guys. Right, right. And with the Clippers, it was always something. You know, Chris Paul was hurt, or, or Blake would maybe have some moments in the playoffs where he didn't show up, and, and they weren't able to get it done in L.A. But in Philly, I'm going to put a lot of it on his personnel and those guys having moments where they froze up under the situation. And I don't know how you coach around that when they're their primary ball handlers and guys you're counting on to be aggressive and initiate offense and create shots for themselves and other people. And, and they both go into these shells and these dark places. So I'm going to cut Doc a break. That won't happen in Milwaukee. He doesn't have to make as many judgments in Milwaukee. The offense is going to run itself for the most part with those two guys showing up when it matters. And that's why I think Doc has a legitimate shot to make this work this time. All right, Legs. We're going to now talk about the All-Star starters. And tonight on TNT – they will announce who was voted in by the players, by the fans, and by the coaches. But those lists are always a little weird because the fans will vote, you know, but it becomes popularity contests or some weird things. I thought that rather than ask who is going to be, I thought who would Legler pick? If, if Adam Silver came and said, Tim Legler, you get to pick the All-Stars this year. You get to pick the All-Star starters. Who would they be? Let's start with the Eastern Conference. Who did you go with? Oh, uh, yeah. So I'm interpreting this question as, you know, it's not, it's all solely based on your performance and your team's performance. Period. End of yeah. story. I don't care about popularity and who's starting right. All Star game and what the kids want to see. I, I don't care for this conversation. The front court was so easy. It's Jason Tatum, Giannis, and Embiid. I mean, I don't think anybody on the planet would pick anything differently than those three guys. It gets interesting when you get into the backcourt. I think there are some options there. And for me, it's Jalen Brunson and Tyrese Halliburton. Um, and I know Halliburton's had some injuries here lately, but he's got he's got enough games under his belt to if he's healthy to warrant that. Um, yeah. And then Jalen Brunson, you know, just with what he does night in, night out for the Knicks and, and, you know, how relevant they are now in the East, it's Brunson's show. And, again, a guy that just absolutely loves the big game and just seems to deliver every time. Now, you had some other guys – that probably could get some consideration. Certainly Donovan Mitchell should get some consideration, yeah. particularly with how the Cavs have played here lately. I think Tyrese Maxey is yeah. a guy that certainly deserves consideration. And I think certainly Maxey, 100%, will be an all-star. And I, I'm guessing Donovan Mitchell will too. Uh, and I, for, as far as guards, that's probably about it. I don't know if I'd extend it beyond that. Would you? Is there anybody I'm forgetting in the backcourt? Because I think we both agree that's the yeah. front court. Yeah, I agreed with you on the backcourt too. It's funny. So legs, we originally laid out the show. We were each going to give our five and then we were going to contrast. We gave the same five in each conference. So it shows just kind of how we're aligned without even talking. But to me, Brunson and Halliburton were easy picks. I actually didn't struggle very much with the Eastern Conference. And the reason, the, all those guys you mentioned have been great and, and kind of like similar capacities in terms of leading their team. But I think Brunson and Halliburton are two of the most irreplaceable players in the entire NBA, meaning their teams are so dependent on what they do and they so consistently deliver with that sort of workload on them. And that's why they were those guys were easy for me. I think it's underrated and under-discussed, perhaps, the season that Jalen Brunson is having. And, uh, and then, obviously, Tyrese Halliburton, you're right that he's lost some momentum from some of these injuries. But just look at how the uh, Pacers have performed in his absence. You know, they clearly miss him, and, and I think it was easy. All right, let's go over to the Western Conference. One last thing real quick on the Halliburton thing, and he's, he's missed 10 games now, and they're in seventh place. So what do you think their record is in those 10 games he missed? Let's just say conservatively they go five and five. Let's just call it five and five. You know, you think about 
that's five more wins. That would put them basically tied for third. Right. Right. I mean, they, they'd be in the running for third place or fourth place at the worst in the Eastern Conference. So, you know, people that might think, oh, Pacers don't have a good enough record. We'll think about what that would be if Halliburton played. All right, so we go to the West. And again, I didn't have any struggles whatsoever with the front court. I think it's Kevin Durant and particularly what he's done here the last month. I mean, he is – you talk about yep. cooking offensively. He's on fire. Uh, you got to go, KD. Kawhi Leonard, uh, and I love the fact that Kawhi pretty much played all year. Yep. And the load management thing hasn't really been in effect. And he's been sensational, man. He looks like the same Kawhi that led uh, the Toronto Raptors to a championship. And then, obviously, Jokic is going to be your center. So the front court, easy for me. Backcourt, uh, and that says Jalen Brunson underneath uh, Shea Gunther's Alexander <laughs> on that court. That is not Jalen Brunson. He's not playing for the East and the West. Uh, Shea Gilgis alexander is an easy one. It's the best record in the Western Conference. Second best record, tied for second best record in the entire league. 31 points a night. You know, very young team, mature beyond their years. It's because of Shea Gilgis Alexander. The guy is as unstoppable an offensive force as we have in this league. He has to be on there. Now, it gets down to that that last spot, that last guard spot. That's where I struggle. And I'm going, do I reward Anthony Edwards? 25 points a game, second best record in the Western Conference. Or do I go with the guy that is – clearly the more dominant offensive right. force in this league and maybe controls the game at a higher level other than anybody besides Jokic. And of course it's Luka Doncic. And the only reason I struggled as much as I did, when you look at a guy averaging 33 points a game, basically averaging a triple double 33 points a game in, in Luka, he's one of the worst defensive players I think I've ever seen. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. I'm just going to put it. He, he literally, yeah. he literally, Gives almost no regard to defense except for cleaning up the defensive glass. He's a big-time defensive rebounder, and that is part of team defense. So I'll give him credit for that. But And you see it when he matches up against some of these elite wings, and he had some this week. He had to guard Jalen Brown in some one-on-one situations. He had to guard Durant last night in some one-on-one situations. And it ain't pretty, man. And just his lack of physical retreat and transitions it's all these things defensively he doesn't lay it on the line on that end of the floor enough for me to make that a no-brainer it's got to be luca and that's why i think anthony edwards because of his intensity he plays defense he pressures on the perimeter he's still putting up big numbers but at the end of the day i went with luca adam just because of you know how spectacular he is in affecting the game as a scorer facilitator he's on a different level than anthony edwards on that end of the floor um, so I, ultimately, the last spot would go to Luca. For me, the East was relatively easy. The West was tough, and I had the exact same sort of back and forth in my head that you were having here about how much to reward winning because I think you could have made a case for an Anthony Davis and a LeBron James, a Steph Curry. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, those guys, even though it's only one spot between Dallas and the Lakers, that is three games, and it's a meaningful spot between eighth and ninth. It's the old school playoffs and not playoffs. And then on top of that, all the things you said, if, if you're splitting hairs, you can look at all of this and say Luka Doncic is a heck of an individual talent. But I'm with you that the, the clock is ticking on Luka in that everyone knows how great he is. Everyone knows how he impacts and uh, the team. And everybody knows that even in the playoffs, he's gone against some very good teams and had some outrageous performances. But there is a winning element to just how much are you willing to sacrifice for the team that Luka to me, is behind schedule for a, cal- a star his caliber in the effort he sort of gives to those to those arenas, the extra plays, the talking to officials, and then uh, you know throwing a fan out last night, step in the wrong direction. So for me, it was I went back and forth with it as well. It wasn't Anthony Edwards for me, but it was Anthony Davis. It was LeBron James. You could even throw a fox in there if you wanted to. It was those guys, but I went with Luca just like you did. Um, it's not going to be any of those. We got tonight when it's announced, LeBron James is going to be on there, the highest vote getter, of course. And right. You're going to you're going to have all these right. other guys, and it's going to throw things off. But I look, I honestly haven't looked at the total. Is Steph Curry? Is Steph Curry voted? To, I'm sure he is voted to be a starter right now. Is it him and Luca? I think so. So you're right. It does. It throws yeah. all the stuff out of whack just a little bit when you have the, you know those votes coming in and um and the way it happens. But again, it's for the fans. This isn't a complaint. It's more just the the nature right, one of one year. Of it. 
one year, uh, one year Yao Ming got voted as a starter. I think he played eight games at that point. So yeah, it's it's you know it's uh, it's uh, you got to be paying attention. It's obviously a popularity contest, and that's fine. And that's that's the formula they want to use. The reserves, to me, much more interesting to discuss. Um, and if you're not a reserve, you better at least be on the snub list. If you're not even listed as a <laughs> snub, then then you need to look in the mirror a little bit. So we're going to get into that too when the reserves are announced. I, I love the snubs, and I also love the MVP conversation. Not not the winner, the conversation. Like, who is the guy? Should Jalen Brunson be in the conversation? Nobody thinks he's MVP, but he should be there. I always love those. I think it's funny. Uh, we had one last Super Chat, Legs. People are Super Chatting. They're loving the show. What do you have for us, Emma? Who is it? Coleman Knight says, what do you think Lakers need to do to help Austin Reeves be more efficient? Do you have a quick hitter on this one? We're not really talking Lakers today, but do you have a quick hitter on something that the Lakers could do to help Austin Reeves? No, I, I honestly don't think, I think, listen, I, I love Austin Reeves game and I love what he brings to the Lakers. And he's certainly the second most important creator on that team. Austin Reeves has a limited ceiling. It's not like Austin Reeves has, yeah. has, has so much more to grab offensively um, just because athletically it's going to be harder for him to do those kinds of things. And, and from a usage standpoint on that team with those two players. I, so I don't know know that there's an answer to that I, I you know just appreciate Austin Reeves for what he is and what he does and the energy he brings and the, and the you know the creative flair he brings and LeBron certainly trusts him which is a big thing yeah uh well that does it for today's show once again an action uh, and a an, uh, content rich hour hour and four minutes so much content to talk about that we went a little bit long we appreciate Eric name for hopping on legs another great show we'll do it again tomorrow you got it all right everybody hit that like button on the way out we'll see you tomorrow Like the mayor.